Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. I have a super special guest that I want to introduce you to. Her name is Dr. Miriam Grossman. Uh, she is an author, a psychiatrist, and uh, I will allow her to just walk through. Uh, we'll do that during uh, this interview so I can save time because I want you to hear her. Uh, Miriam Grossman is a significant voice in our culture today, especially where we are in our culture, specifically with the transgender problem. I will say some of you probably uh, know her from Matt Walsh's documentary, uh, What is a Woman, where he interviewed her, uh, and she has been interviewed all over the place. And so I consider this a privilege. I just finished her book a couple of weeks ago, Lost, her latest book, Lost in Transnation. It is a fantastic book, and I would say that uh, this, if you only read one book this year, this is the book that you need to read. And, and one of the reasons that you need to read it is it, it just not only speaks to the problem of the transgender issue, but it is a, as the book says, it's a practical guide book. And for those of you who follow us, you know that I do uh, biblical counseling. That's my life and being very practical in how we talk to people and walk them through their issues is essential. And so as I was going through uh, her book, I was looking for for the practicalization aspects, and it is really throughout, uh, and not just speaking to those who struggle with transgender, but even more importantly, in some ways, uh, talking to the parents and helping the parents to work through this transgender issue. And so it is a guidebook. It's a historical book. It speaks to the psychology of the problem. And then, of course, it is super practical. And so it covers a lot of bases and she has done a good work. Miriam, welcome. Dr. Grossman, what should I call you here? I'll call you anything you want me to. Oh, no, you don't want to know what I've been called, but <laughs> I, mean, I mean, usually I go by Dr. Grossman. Thank Dr. you. Dr. Grossman, it's very glad. I'm very glad uh, to have you here. And uh, thank you for being willing to uh, to step into this interview. I know that you interview like crazy. I also know that you have come through COVID uh, most recently. And so you, you've been in your own battle uh, with that. And uh, I recognize that. So I'll try to go easy with you. And uh, But anyway, thank you for being here. Uh, the thing that I want to begin with, um, you come across as uh, not necessarily docile, but just very, you, you come across very grandmotherly. And that's probably that's my takeaway with you. I don't know if you're a grandmother or not, but you come across uh, grandmotherly. And but as I get into your material, as I listen to your podcast, as I read your books, you have a lot of courage. Uh, and so I imagine that you wear a cape. I mean, that's the only way that I can uh, figure you out is that you're a grandmother with a cape because you have a lot of courage. You have a backbone. Uh, you're speaking into an issue that our culture is scared to speak into, generally speaking. I think there's more that won't speak into it than will. And you're one of those willing persons. And so, first of all, I just want to say thank you. 
that has been at the top of my mind ever since I first uh, learned of you. I just wanted to say thank you for what you do. Uh, you're a courageous person, and you do not iterate that way <laughs> at all. You just come across as, as someone else, but yet you speak pointedly, you speak directly, compassionately, kindly, uh, but also very courageously. And I just appreciate you. You are a, a, a role model. I don't flatter people, by the way. I'm being very sincere. You, you are a role model uh, to our culture. And I just want to say before we get into anything else, I appreciate you. Uh, I really do appreciate you. Oh, I tend to uh, cry. Um, it's just the way that I am sometimes for things that are important to me. And uh, as I listen to you talk and as you take these stands and as I see where our culture is going, I'm an old man. And so this is not my America. Uh, I tell our children, uh, this is not my America. This is yours. My America was a few generations back and uh, we lived a lot differently. And so I know the difference between then and now. And so as I see our culture disengaging from a Judeo-Christian Judeo a construct and worldview, and then see people like you speaking into it. So that's my last monologue in this entire interview. Uh, but I just wanted to say thank you for the courage that you're, you're taking on this particular uh, issue that's so uh, important to our culture. Well, Rick, um, it's very moving for me to hear you say all of that. And I think um, the emotion that I'm picking up on your end has to do with the fact that we just are not hearing much truth anymore. And so I'm just, I feel like I'm just standing up and saying the truth. And yet people are so appreciative and moved and uh, like you are just to hear these simple truths. And so you know, I guess that's an indication of just how far off we we've become, how how far off the path we are, uh, the path of living in reality and the path of just the truths that we all know. Everyone knows that that we are divided into male or female. Humanity is divided into male or female and that that is established at conception and that that is permanent and that that cannot change. A person can modify their bodies using drugs and surgeries, but they cannot become the other sex. And just by saying such a simple biological truth that very few years ago, I mean, we all learned that in what, 10th grade biology, it, it wasn't something that was up for debate. So, you know, I, I appreciate all the kind things that you've said. And yes, I am a grandmother. Um, and maybe that's another reason why I so much relate to these families. I wrote my book, um, Lost in Transnation, uh, a child psychiatrist's guide out of the madness, really because after seeing and speaking to hundreds of families that were going through 
and are going through this uh, crisis and this ordeal of having a child um, indoctrinated into falsehoods um, and cling to those falsehoods and sometimes even reject their family because they are so indoctrinated. Um, my, as a grandmother and a, and a parent, I, my heart was just so moved upon speaking to so many hundreds of families that are going through this. Now, I have been a psychiatrist for a very long time, and I've treated all sorts of patients. I worked in a forensic hospital for years. A forensic hospital is basically a prison for the severely mentally ill who have committed violent crimes. And in that capacity, I mean, I had patients who were murderers. I had patients who killed their family members, you know, who were psychotic because they went off of their medication for schizophrenia um, and they committed horrific crimes. But you see, that was easier in a sense than, than what I'm dealing with now when I see these families, because what I'm seeing now is man-made. And this is a man-made catastrophe. This did not have to happen. Schizophrenia is a terrible disease and it leads people to rarely um, commit terrible violent acts. But the, what we're seeing here, which is the, um, the indoctrination of children uh, to believe a falsehood that they were born in the wrong body and that the body needs to be um, modified <clears throat> uh, in order that, that they can quote unquote live their authentic selves where actually the, what they're going to do is, is go through very invasive, dangerous experimental procedures that are going to leave them in many cases with chronic medical issues, infertility, pain, infections, and so on, and not necessarily feeling better emotionally. You right. see, this, this is what a lot of people don't realize. The, the medical transition is presented to the kids and to all of us as a solution to emotional distress. But all the research shows over the years that that's not necessarily the case. For some individuals, it may, it may be, but certainly not for a majority. And we cannot predict beforehand which individuals are going to be helped by these medical interventions and which are going to be in, in worse emotional shape as a result. You said a lot there, and uh, I want to go back and hit a couple of those uh, mile markers in uh, what you laid out there. I mean, we did learn about biology in 10th grade, but I, 
you know, maybe I was just uh, a little head of the class because I learned about biology in the second grade when I noticed girls and, and realized that there was a difference between male and female. But it is common sense, and it's not something that you would even have to, I mean, it's not even something that you think about. I mean, it's the air we breathe. I mean, this is what it is. This is what we need as far as air is concerned. That is a boy. That is a girl. It's quite simple. And so I do like the construction you have of it being man-made because it most definitely is. But when you started psychiatry, now you've been doing that uh, all of your life. So we're we're north of forty years of doing psychiatry now. Uh, yeah. When you when you started, what was your purpose, uh, reason? What was your primary point of? If it wasn't transgenderism, it was why? Why did you go into it? And then, when did it transition? Uh, to use uh, an ironic term here, but it, it looked like you went from the macro to the micro. Uh, as far as your career is concerned. And so when you first went into the field of psychiatry as you're doing your PhD work, what was your planned course and what did you do initially? And then what was the, the uh, tipping point where it transitioned? Sure. Um, it was MD, not PhD. Um, I, okay, I, went, okay. I went to medical school. Um, yeah, that's well, right. And so it, it is Miriam Grossman, MD. That That is her website, by the way, dot com. And uh, I did know that. I'm sorry. That's OK. Um, I just normally I wouldn't make a big deal out of it. But because of the subject, I think it's a, I, it's important right. for to understand right. that I am a medical doctor. I'm not a um, Jill Biden Ph.D., if, if I could. Say. <laughs> OK, right. so. Uh, let's see, you asked me, well, of course, when I was doing my training in medical school and then later on in psychiatry and then in child psychiatry, um, my exposure to uh, individuals who had a sense of discomfort with being male or female was zero. Uh, it was so rare, you know, the occurrence of these individuals who we've known about for a long, long time in psychiatry, that there are extremely rare individuals, um, uh, mostly boys, when we're talking about the children. Okay, let me give you a little overview here. So we've always known that there's essentially two groups of people who suffer from a discomfort with their sex. And those were uh, categorized as either young kids who were mostly boys, and they would express this discomfort about being a boy very early on. It did not come from the internet. It did not come from their friends. It did not come from their guidance counselor at school. It came from something that was happening internally. We don't know what that is. We don't have any, we haven't identified any biological inborn uh, 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 evidence uh, that, uh, of, of any of this being physical or biological. There's no such thing as having a boy's brain in a girl's body. There's just no such thing. As I say in my book, we are not Legos. We are not Mr. Potato Heads that can be assembled improperly. There are rare individuals who have medical conditions, about 0.02% of births, and they are, are what we now call intersex. That does not mean that there is a third sex. It right. does not mean that. 
but just getting back to the to the people who have this discomfort with their sex, um, we always knew that these young kids, uh, mostly boys, are going to grow out of it. We have a whole bunch of studies from years ago in which these boys and some girls were followed through the years. And if they are permitted to go through a natural puberty, the vast majority, in some studies over 90%, will get over their uh, discomfort with their bodies. A lot of them are going to be gay and lesbian, but they are happy with the bodies that they inhabit. Now, the other group of people that we were aware of for a long, long time are middle-aged heterosexual men who, um, who after having families, uh, decide that, uh, and they enjoy uh, cross-dressing, they are sexually stimulated by wearing women's clothing and by imagining themselves as women and entering women's spaces. And there are there were always uh, men who might decide in their 40s or 50s that they wish to uh, go through what was called a sexual reassignment and go through surgery and try and live their lives as the opposite sex, appearing as the opposite sex. Now, what's going on now for about the past almost 10 years now is an explosion of cases of um, not young kids and not middle-aged men, um, but of teenage girls. Girls, yep. Yes, who never before expressed any discomfort with their bodies, with their, well, I won't say with their bodies, that's not true. Let me remove that. They may have been, you know, they may have had eating disorders or all sorts of other issues that are going on, but they don't have discomfort about being female. Let's put it that way. And so we have this new group of young people who at the at the start uh, or or during adolescence or young adulthood, they rather suddenly, after um, after many of them binging on YouTube videos and social media and coming under the influence of other people, friend friend groups, um, people at school, people online, and they become convinced that they. Uh, are the other sex. So this is a completely, this is so important, Rick, for people to understand. This is a new group of kids. And we're calling this group, we're identifying them as having rapid onset gender dysphoria. And they are being studied now, slowly, but we don't have any long-term studies because they haven't been around that long. And the problem is, Rick, that these kids, at least in this country and in Canada, are being automatically um, rubber stamped in their new identities. And parents are being told by professional societies such as um, you know, the psychiatric and psychological and educational organizations, government organizations, 
they're being told that this is the only way, only affirming this new identity um, and going along with the new name and pronouns and um, hormones and surgeries. Uh, is your child going to have a chance of a healthy, well-adjusted life? Otherwise, there's a strong risk of suicide. This is the message that's out there. Yeah, it's the converging of uh, of two things that are happening at the same time. Uh, one, we're having young girls and boys too, but as you uh, have said, the hockey stick happened in around 2010 when YouTube, for example, came online and the other social media platforms. That's when you see this spike, especially of young girls who are being indoctrinated into this ideology. But what we have here are, are, are young people who are transitioning from uh, or <laughs> evolving. Maybe I should use another word here from uh, childhood to young adulthood. And every parent knows that when you cross that great divide of going from child to a uh, young adult or to a teenager, everybody, everything in you is changing your voice, your body. You're stepping out into a less dependent state with your parents. And so there's a lot of insecurity, anxiety, fear, and, and all of this constellation of words that really um, uh, affects our psyche, our, our souls. And so that's a very real reality that every person goes through to varying degrees. But then on the other side, the converging is you have these cultural evangelists who now own the algorithms uh, that are waiting for them to come online and, and to be able to find answers for what they're looking for, which are non-answers uh, at all, because this is a made up, made up problem. So you have a real issue that a child is struggling with, and then you have people presenting solutions that aren't solutions. And, and so that gets to this. I, I would like for you to speak to uh, the uh, the move from the DSM four to the DSM five now is the DSM five TR but but you talk in uh, Lost in Translation about this wordplay you call it brilliant I do too as a matter of fact when they went from GID gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria uh, and just walk through what was going on there because this speaks to it's not a real problem it's a political move. Uh, it's lobbies or sociologists or whomever uh, that's uh, having sway with the editors of the DSM to change this language so that they can communicate another worldview, which they have. And so what was going on when they went from GID to gender dysphoria? Sure, sure. It's important for people to know it, for parents to understand. I also want to make sure that we get to the fact that I have provided parents with a practical, as you said earlier on, very practical information on reaching your child first. You have to reach them first before they're old enough to go out there and not even go online, but you know, kids in some schools, in some preschools even, are going to be exposed to these ideas. And I want parents to reach their children at a young age and make sure that they understand that they that they were a boy or a girl from the moment of their creation. It has nothing to do with being assigned anything in the delivery room by any doctor or any nurse. That is just ridiculous. 
Um, yeah, that's that's important. I've I've written an article on our website. It's titled something like "Wise Parents Teach Their Children to Curse," and the idea behind that is that who do you want to teach your children language? And so, as our children go into well, as we parented our children into middle school, that's when we had the sex talk with them. But we're talking about 11, 12, and 13 years of age. And and while we were having the sex talk with our children, we were teaching them language because we knew that they were going to hear language. And so we walked through curse words because I had rather teach my children what those words are rather than the culture teaching them what those words are. But here's the, here's the difference. We did that in a time... Uh, when the culture was not so aggressive. And so I could wait until we had the sex talk at 11, 12 years of age with our children. But now parents have to be way out in front of that a lot earlier because these children, if you wait till your child is 12, then you've already missed the boat with that child because now the culture is preempting that and they're starting as early as they possibly can indoctrinating them and so as you say in your book and you can continue to speak on that but we have to get way in front of that we can't wait to start teaching our children Correct. what used what used to be common sense okay but there are so many things that even little kids even a preschool child can understand that that Boy and girl is not a random assignment by the doctor at the time of birth. And so I want parents to be teaching their child that, their children that, and to be emphasizing that it's permanent and that it's wonderful. And this is important, that there are all kinds of boys and girls. So not every boy is going to be into football and trucks and what have you, and not every girl, you know, these stereotype, stereotypical things. And that's wonderful. There, there are many different ways to be a boy, to be a man, to be a girl, right. and a woman. And we never want to accept that the idea that a person must harm their body, change their body in order to become the kind of person that they feel that they are. And, uh, you know, harming the body is out. Harming the body is out. We, you know, kids are taught. I also go into this in the book about the environment and about how the earth is a delicate ecosystem. I want kids to know that their bodies are delicate ecosystems. And this is especially true. Your daughters, your daughters have to understand the wonders that happen in a woman's body. And that includes nursing. I want girls to understand that breasts are not disposable sex objects. Breasts are, uh, you know, wondrous, um, miraculous organs that uh, provide the best known sustenance to infants known to man. Uh, and uh, there's much more going on there in, in nursing than, than meets the eye. It's an experience of, of bonding and everything else. So we, we really need, and, and I wrote a book about sex education as well called You're Teaching My Child What? 
right. which I emphasize that girls and you know the girls and boys are different. The biology of every cell is different, and you know this inter interfaces uh, with with the message about transgenderism because there is no such thing. You every cell is imprinted. Every cell with a nucleus, which is almost every cell, is imprinted male or female, and that can never be changed. Yeah, I would like to go, uh, actually, maybe we can talk a little later on the difference between hard science and soft science, uh, because they're living in a soft science world. But what you're talking about is hard science, and that is not alterable. And you do make that point. And it's just, again, it's, it's common sense. Uh, but before we get too far down that path. Rick, I'm sorry, uh, Rick, I didn't answer about the DSM. Yeah, I was going to say, let's get back to uh, okay. there, there are many there's so much here. Now, what I would recommend, and I'm talking to Dr. Miriam Grossman, MD, uh, her latest book, uh, Lost in Translation. I've gone through it. It's a fantastic, but it is really a very good book. And uh, this information is there. It's more than uh, what you would even anticipate. So I would encourage you to get it. She referenced another book, which I think was maybe 2009. You're teaching my child what, uh, and then you're reproducing uh, with, uh, uh, what's the one protection? What's it called? Um, Oh, unprotected. I was saying protection, but unprotection. So we can touch on those in a moment, but uh, these these are essential reads, and we do have to get in front of this because uh, our world is not waiting for us to catch up. They are very proactive. They're aggressive in what they're doing. They're Correct. changing the language. And uh, once you uh, once you can define the term, then you you own it. And uh, they are changing the language. And, and we um, are accepting that. And just this is this is what we call it now. And once we buy into their language, these are watershed issues. And so you're either this way or this way. And so we have to understand what's happening at the terminology level, which gets back to the question that I was asking, because there have been shifts ever since the DSM-1 in 1952, uh, as they were trying to collate uh, psychology and, and put it in a, a codified, unified way. Uh, but, but then different entities are competing for uh, input into these uh, diagnostic statistical manuals. And so it keeps evolving. But there's also a political side to these manuals as well, because there's lobbying groups that are trying to push their agendas. And 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 one of the uh, ways that they've done that is they move from the DSM four to five is changing GID to gender dysphoria. And so let's uh, go back to that one and, and just walk through that, because it, as you say, it, it was brilliant uh, in a perverse way. Uh, and I agree. And, and now people say gender dysphoria and they really don't know what they're saying. But what they're doing is they're buying into a presupposition uh, that sets the course for a worldview, which ultimately works out into a practice. OK, so, um, you know, and we could spend the whole hour just speaking about this, but I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try and put it into a paragraph here, one paragraph. Um, so psychiatry always considered it to be a emotional disorder when a person has severe distress about their sex and a identification 
with the opposite sex and a um, discom- a severe discomfort with their genitals and their breasts and so on, and a desire to live as the opposite sex, we always in psychiatry saw that as a disorder. Now, um, the world changed and the um, things became extremely politicized and uh, activists, transgender activists and others um, began to um, you know, began to promote the idea very aggressively that that this was not a disorder, that it is instead a variant, a normal variant of human expression. And um, this, the proponents of this idea uh, were were and are extremely bold. and they that the thinking had an impact on the committee of people, the working group of psychiatrists and psychologists that were responsible for looking at that diagnosis. The old diagnosis was called gender identity disorder. Okay, focus on disorder. And they had the responsibility of deciding what are we going to do with that diagnosis? Are we just, are we going to keep it? Are we going to throw it out? Are we going to change it? So after a lot of deliberation and um, a lot of external pressure, the decision was made. And it, and I'll, I'll say this, this is important. This decision was not only political, it was made out of a sense of compassion for those individuals that because they were um, suffering this disorder, they were discriminated against. And uh, it, so, so a lot of the, a lot of the motivation was compassion as well as political pressure. So <laughs> would there, would there be economic pressure in there as well for the financial gain uh, that some folks uh, are now achieving because of the uh, trans transgender rick i i would say probably not and the reason i no because back in you know the early 2009 2010 2011 when these discussions were going on about gid and what to do with it it was still a time when this was very rare okay okay we're living in different times right now where you have you know 30% of a high school class saying that they're neither male or female. So it, it, this was, these were people were, were quite rare. So I think that financially it was not seen as the gold mine that it is right now. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So this decision was made not, you see, if they had completely thrown out the diagnosis, then there would be a problem. The problem would be that for those people who want insurance reimbursement for treatment for the hormones and the surgeries, there would be no diagnosis to put on the insurance form, right? Right. In order to be reimbursed for hormones, for operations, 
we need a medical diagnosis. So they, they didn't want to remove it for that reason. The other reason that they didn't, oh, so that was a big reason for not removing it. What they did do is they changed the name and they changed the focus. So it was no longer a disorder, no longer gender, gender identity disorder. It was now to be called gender dysphoria. Dysphoria means a sense of discomfort, unhappiness. Um, and the focus was not on the fact that people are uncomfortable with their bodies. The focus was the resulting anxiety and depression that was a consequence of that uh, feeling of, 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 of incongruence, if you're following me. So mm -hmm. not the incongruence itself, which was what GID was focused on. But now we were going to say that the problem was that, that these individuals were suffering as a result of having this normal condition. So it's a huge, huge watershed moment when the uh, American Psychiatric Association went ahead with this because it's a message that yes, this incongruence, this feeling of discomfort that people may have is actually just a normal variant. Right, so with gender, identity disorder, it would speak to a disordered soul that there is something going wrong inside of me. Gender dysphoria, is this fair? Gender, gender dysphoria speaks to a confusion that I have. Could I say it this way? Because of the binary, uh, because of what you believe about what a male and female is. And so there's a shift of, it's not really me that has a problem, but it is this, let's say the binary that has created a problem. Thus that makes me not a disordered soul, but a victim of improper teaching. And so we not only need to change the teaching that there are a plethora of genders, uh, and then there is always there is also a pathway to get to this now flattened out world that we have with multiple genders. So it puts the problem out here, and I just need to be normal by becoming these things, whatever I select out here. So it shifts the problem from a disordered soul to we have been teaching wrongly all along. So I'm a victim of improper teaching. Well, a victim of society's. Um a uh, belief in the binary. Um, right. And, you know, I discovered along the way, because I've been following this for a long time, that children have been taught that the binary, when I refer to binary, I mean that humanity is divided into male and female, which is a biological truth. Um, children have been taught that that biological truth is false, dangerous, and oppressive, for a long, long time, I found material from the 90s in which children, young people were being taught that. So these ideas, you know, have been around for a long time. Um, sex educators like Planned Parenthood and SICUS and other groups that are, you know, funded by our tax dollars have been um, indoctrinating and foisting 
these false ideas on young people for a very, very long time. So surprise, surprise, we now have an explosion of kids who are uh, led to believe that anyone that does not uh, go along with their new identity, what, whatever it may be, however bizarre it might be, is a hater and is biased and is a dangerous, toxic person. And so getting back to the families, you see, the parents are walking a very difficult tightrope, the parents that are dealing with these issues. And my book, Rick, is not only for um, the families that are in this disaster. My book is for all families, no matter how young your, your kids are, uh, in order to, like you put it, get in front of it and understand it before you have your child coming to you at dinner and saying, mom, dad, I'm not your son, I'm your daughter. Please call me Sophia. Please take me in for hormones. And if you don't, well, I know another family that I can go live with. We don't, we, we you know, you want to avoid that at all costs. That is a hell to go through that. And I talk to families every day that are going through that hell. Okay. Yeah, I want to, uh, I'd like for you to give some practical tips on, on that. Uh, I have two questions I, I want to ask. Uh, one is, you're very clear on using language. Uh, you don't like assigned at birth for common sense reasons. Uh, and so you don't cave to uh, the cultural pressure or the evangelistic, uh, what's going to happen to you if you don't do it our way. I am curious why uh, you do use the word dysphoria, though. So this is not a criticism. This is just a curiosity. Uh, instead of calling it confusion or, as you said, unhappiness, you're using the DSM label. And so I'm not suggesting that that's buying into their sleight of hand, but uh, you would not use, uh, you would not, um, there's other words that you would not use, but you use this one. Why do you? Okay. I, I do sometimes say gender distress. I guess, I mean, no one's ever asked me that question. I guess as a <laughs> psychiatrist, yeah, I guess, you know, as a medical person, a psychiatrist that I use, but there's, there's nothing, I mean, the word dysphoria simply means it's not a political term. It's not like saying sex assigned at birth. It's not like saying right. even transgender, which implies that you can change your, you know, your sex. Um, what is the problem that you have with the term dysphoria? Uh, well, I, I I see somebody behind the curtain controlling the handles when we use their language or follow their pro their thought processes, and so I see the breadcrumbs through the DSM that has led to dysphoria. And so, on one hand, the the word is accurate; the person is confused, uh, but I see the manipulation in the language of what they're trying to do. And so, I'm not trying to be the word police, but I'm just let's just say I'm a little bit suspicious uh, of what they're doing, because as you said earlier, and by the way, you do talk about this in your book, uh, this has been a long train coming as you walk through the Reimer twins and John Money and et cetera. And again, I, I just appeal to people to uh, read this book because this, uh, 
though it hockey sticked in 2010 and and now all of these uh middle class white uh girls um, and there was a fourth category in that demo but uh, are really struggling with it more than others this just did not happen uh, recently. And so it's been, so I, I see the subtle manipulation. And so I'm just hesitant in buying into their wordsmithing because I see somebody behind the curtain controlling the knobs. And so that's my. Maybe you're, I, I think Rick, maybe you're not aware that the word dysphoria is widely used in psychiatry. It, it is. Yes. Yes. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's my, uh, call me it's, it's my cynicism. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's my cynicism to how it's used in a specific way uh, and what they did to get to that word. And that, that's, that's, that's all it is. It's my, it's, okay. my, it's my cynical self. Well, let me just emphasize a few things here. One is that I want your audience to understand that when that change was made, and that was a real um, watershed moment in psychiatry, that there was no debate with it there was no referendum within you know psychiatry and psychology in which you know we were asked what our opinion was that did not happen this was the decision made by a small group of people many of them by the way involved in um you know treating these kids and well, of course it makes sense that they would be on that committee because they had a lot of experience with these individuals, but uh, it, it is not an objective, uh, it was not an objective decision. It was a decision that was influenced strongly by politics um, uh, and compassion and uh, the fact that you need to have a, a diagnosis um, for, for your insurance forms. Now, let me also mention, just because I want parents out there to know, that there's a, a lot of boys as well. My practice, right. my practice is about fifty percent boys. So, even though a, a lot of the studies do indicate a majority of girls, maybe a higher, maybe even seventy percent girls, there's still a lot, a lot of boys, and the boys come into it in a different way. Um, many of them are pulled into it through pornography. So I have um, one of the appendices, I have seven appendices in the book. And one of them um, written by an IT expert who wanted to remain anonymous, um, wrote an excellent guide for getting control of your child's internet use. Parents, you have to be on top of your child's internet use. There are groomers that are just looking for your child to recruit your child into this dangerous ideology. And you've got to be on top of it from a very early age. Um, There are other appendices that have to do with schools, um, CPS, how to deal with child protective services if it comes to that, how to put your school on notice, even if your child is just in kindergarten. You want the school to be aware that you do not want your child exposed to these ideas, whether it's in a classroom, through library books, at an assembly, through, um, you know, clubs, clubs that exist that your child might think of attending. 
you you do not give permission under any condition for for anyone to be meeting privately with your child without your knowledge. Um, you have to really watch out because our schools, as wonderful as most educators, I hope, are that there are activists in our schools and they are out to recruit your child. And if you don't believe me, all you need to do is go to um, uh, Libs of TikTok and start right. start watching a few of those teachers and guidance counselors that are very proudly um, recording, you know, how how thrilled they are to uh, to to indoctrinate your child in their classrooms. Yeah, they don't have to hide the ball anymore. And uh, their boldness can actually be uh, shocking, but they're also protected uh, in, uh, you know, by media. Uh, they're protected by the academy. They're protected by politics. And so they don't have to be uh, as slight, as slight a hand as they used to be. Uh, what would you say to the parent of an intersex child? Intersex is a completely different issue. Um, the, you know, most intersex people uh, do not identify as transgender. In fact, um, the intersex, intersex society uh, takes great issue with the argument that the transgender, uh, you know, uh, uh, how should I put it, crusade um, is 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 trying to include. You see, the, the, the crusade, the ideology, um, takes the fact that there are rare individuals who have um, biological uh, components of both male or female, their genitalia may be, uh, may be un unclear or, or, you know, not be your, your uh, normal presentation. Um, there may be boys that have a very, very small penis. There may be girls that have an enlarged clitoris. And, you know, there's there's all sorts of combinations. There's um, uh, chromosomal abnormalities that a person may be born with. There are um, uh, hormonal abnormalities. This is completely separate from uh, transgenderism in trans transgenderism. There's no medical abnormality at all. There's nothing wrong with the genitals, with the reproductive system. There's not, nothing that's found in the brain that's, uh, that's an indication of, of anything different than a normal boy or girl. Now, um, in terms of what I would tell the parents of an intersex child, uh, you know, it, it's it's a medical condition. Uh, some individuals are completely fine with their bodies. They uh, they don't they don't have a problem with it. Uh, in which case, fantastic. There's nothing nothing needs to be done. Um, other individuals who may you know have medical issues or psychiatric issues can get the appropriate help. But intersex individuals, uh, you know, almost every condition that's considered intersex, and there are many, many conditions, 
their reproductive systems are still designed to produce either sperm or eggs. Um, whether they're able to, whether they are fertile or not, could be a question. But even if they're not fertile, their reproductive system is centered around those possibilities. And so again, intersex does not mean that there is a third sex. This is just the, they're trying to, the proponents, the crusaders of this ideology are trying to, um, how should I put it? Hijack or colonize, take over biology take over biological truths and spin them to fit their agenda. And I have a, um, an appendix about that as well called Biology 101. So I'm really giving parents all the information they need. And I will also add that part of the book involved doing a international survey of, of 500 parents who have kids who are, uh, who 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 struggling with their identity. And I asked these 500 uh, parents from 17 different countries um, for advice. What would they tell other parents? Uh, and, and there's just, you know, it could have been a whole book. It could have been, you know, a hundred pages, but I had to pick and choose. And so parents will also find an appendix with that advice. And to summarize that advice, I would say, um, get your child off the internet, um, keep your bond with your child strong, um, do not affirm their identity, but you affirm their emotions. In other words, if the child comes to you and says, I feel so upset, I feel so anxious, I feel like I'm a boy. So what you want to do, and of course, Rick, I have this whole conversation, you know, I have a model conversation between a parent and a child on these issues, but I want the parent to, you see, there's no wrong feelings. There are wrong beliefs. So you can affirm the feeling and you can say, oh, I really understand that you're feeling this way. And I I'm so sorry, and I wanna help you with those feelings. While at the same time, you are not supporting the false belief that's that goes along with that feeling. There's two different things. There's feelings, right. there's beliefs. And so you strengthen the bond with the child in that way without- Yeah, yeah you wanna be careful not to- uh respond impulsively or angrily or reacting to all that you see on social media uh, when it comes to your home. And I would say that it's already in all of our homes to well, it is in all of our homes if we have any access to the internet and social media because they're everywhere. They're in TV commercials, television, movies, etc. Of course, the social media platforms is, uh, is prime real estate for them to do, do their evangelistic work. Uh, I teach counseling. Uh, that's part of what I do for a living. And when folks want to do counseling, uh, one of the things I think about is that uh, in order to 
live in that world, you have to have a sturdy soul. And this gets back to how we began this interview. You have a lot of courage. You can't do what you do uh, without having a sturdy soul because uh, there's so much that you see, there's so much that you experience, and it can affect you in adverse ways. And uh, God has given you a, a sturdy soul to be able to do what you do and has really uh, positioned you to step more in the micro of this specific uh, road that you're going down now that's helping so many people. Again, this is Dr. Miriam Grossman, MD, and that is her website, Miriam Grossman, MD. Dot com, but you type in Miriam Grossum, that, that's what you want to do. Uh, and you'll find scores upon scores of videos. You will get to her website. She has multiple books, which you can also uh, get on Amazon. Dr. Grossman, just one other um, uh, question for you. Uh, there's a punitive nature to what you do. And so you're somewhat adjacent to your own uh, psychiatric community. Uh, because of this position that you're taking, but that is a a picture of what the rest of us sense intuitively in our own worlds. Because once we take this position, then you know we're opposing to some degree what others are doing. And so this this be our final thing here. But but what would be your advice uh, for the temptation to self censor? Uh, not to speak in or to buy into the gaslighting that's happening in our culture because you're doing the exact opposite of that. You're, you're, you're facing the wind and you're moving right into the uh, fierceness of it. So what would be your advice uh, to those of us who need to have a voice to speak out against this? Well, first of all, I want people to know that I am inundated with emails of support from psychiatrists, other medical specialties, uh, psychologists, social workers. Um, there are so many, so many people that are out there um, that, uh, you know, that agree with what I'm arguing here, that see the truth. It's true, though, that many of them are fearful, fearful for their jobs, for their families, for their social connections. Um, <coughs> You know, there's a group out there, or maybe it's a website, I'm not sure, but it's called um, Courage is a Habit. And I think that, you know, if you start slowly and um, just put your toe in the water, you'll see that it can be done and that you will get over your initial hesitancy and I'm not saying get over, you know, completely a sense of fear. Um, you know, I sometimes have anxiety. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I will sometimes hesitate to be as strong as I should be. Um, and then I just push myself and I say, I think of other people that are so strong on other issues and I just envision that that's how, what I have to do as well. I'm very blessed that God has given me the opportunity to do this and the um, ability to do this. Um, I never thought in a million years when I got my medical degree that I'd be doing anything like this at all. Um, but it came in front of me and 
I saw too much, like I say on my website, I know too much. And when you know too much, I think every decent person is moved to do something. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be a speech. It doesn't have to be writing an article. It can be as simple as, you know, I I don't know, getting my book and or going onto my website. There's a lot, a lot of stuff on there. Right. And just saying to somebody, a few people that you know, who you think might be open, who you think might be on the fence. And there's a lot of people that are on the fence. And just say, you know, hey, I read this and it's by this doctor, a medical doctor. And I I really think you need to see it. I really think you need to hear this. And that's it. That's a big thing to do that. Well, I'm glad to know that you uh, struggle with anxiety. That makes me feel better. Uh, That means that you are normal, that you are a humanoid. Uh, and so that's that's good. Uh, there's three things that I'm I'm hearing from you. Uh, two of them are quite obvious. Uh, courage, as I've mentioned. The second one is competence. Uh, you're very competent in what you do. But there's a third one that I would not want to dismiss at all, and that is compassion. And I've heard you talk dozens of times, and you're compassionate. Uh, you have a sympathetic approach to this. And so it's it's rare to have that kind of courage and competence, but yet with compassion as well, you're not aggravating, you're not mean-spirited, you're not unkind toward people. And so we can communicate, as the Bible would say, we communicate truth with love. And you bring both of those things together, of course, with a whole lot of competence. And so I appreciate you very much. Uh, for those of you who haven't read the book, Lost in Transnation, start there. Uh, let that be your first book from Dr. Grossman, if you haven't read any others, and then you can work through her collection, but you will benefit uh, from it tremendously. And again, the practicality of it is essential because these are the questions that people ask. I speak all over the country and over the past uh, 10 years, the questions have changed. Uh, Things that I, in fact, you just said that the things that I thought that I would never be answering before are now the questions that are at top of mind for people. And Dr. Miriam Grossman has a lot of answers uh, in her, in all of her books, but the specific one we're talking about today is lost in transnation. Dr. Grossman, thank you so much for being with me. Well, thank you so much, Rick. And I'll just tell people as well that um, there's an audio version of Lost in Transnation that I narrated. Um, It was quite an experience to sit there for about 40 hours and read my book, but it was it was a peak experience. And for those that are, you know, don't have the time to sit down with a book and they're driving or cooking or whatever they're doing, um, they could also listen to it. So um, thank you very, very much, Rick. This was a really beautiful, excellent interview. You're welcome. For all you walkers out there, yes, uh, praise God for Audible. And so I did not say that, but uh, yes, that is important. Uh, Get your exercise, which is needful, and listen to uh, Dr. Grossman as well. And so that's two birds with one stone. God bless. Thank you so much. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for joining us. 
Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com. 